Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. So today's reading will be from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. 
To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Joshua and uh, one of the uh, pastors here at CBS, especially with our overseas students. And we come today to uh, Isaiah chapter 40, a great chapter. Imagine, however, that your family is under siege. Uh, your hum- home country is being attacked by missiles like in Ukraine. Bombs are exploding everywhere and you wonder whether the next one will be your flat. Your little sister is huddling next to you in tears, tears of despair of life itself, desperate, crying. No guarantee that any help would actually come. Powerless, the attacking powers giving you the threat of death, the threat of being taken to slavery, the threat of being civilians as POWs. We've witnessed it in terms of the news feeds, the uh, videos. But we're on this side of the video screen. We're on this side of the world. We're sitting on our comfy sofa. Imagine if there's external persecution for being Christian, for just standing up for Jesus. So my overseas student friends are from Malaysia and this uh, pastor, uh, Pastor Raymond, was abducted in a very uh, carefully planned uh, car move very quickly in a couple of seconds. And since 2017, he's not been seen. Most likely, dead. In China, there's been lots of crackdown on Christianity ever since Xi Jinping came into power. But is that possible here in Australia? With their misguided views of tolerance, uh, the Bible's view that Jesus lovingly came and died for us, but he's the only way to be saved. The Bible's view that God's blueprint for marriage is the best way, the only way to do sexuality. We are labelled as unloving, even haters of others. We're dismissed, we're cancelled, unwelcomed, We seem to be under siege even as we live in this world. But what if the bombs are exploding, not so much out there, but inside us? It's very easy to get worried and have anxieties, deadlines, assignments. uh, Can we get a good position? And we hear of um, recession coming, the cost of living going up. Uh, Maybe it's anxieties about our family, a conflict, uh, a loss of relationship. 
We feel defeated. We feel rejected. COVID has not helped. Or maybe it's the realisation inside of our own feeling of guilt for our sins. Will God ever forgive us again when I've actually done that sin again? How can God ever let me accept me? And such as the feelings of guilt when we know the reality of guilt before God, the judge, the one who is right. Should we not cry in despair, in despondency, as we know of God's judgment of eternity, where our eternity is not only held in the balance, our eternity is perhaps hopeless because of our sin. This cry of despondent despair, have you ever felt that way? Friends, if that's ever been you, then today's chapter is the chapter for you. For today's chapter starts off with comfort, comfort my people. And it's only as we realise that the black, dark hole that we're in, then we will appreciate the comfort. But maybe some of you have never really felt that deep, dark hole, that despair. Under siege? No. We're in Australia, we are safe. We are getting our way through uni. We've got security coming up. Persecution, you know, we're in Australia. I'm sure the Australian government will protect us. Freedom of religion. And if those discussions come up, I'll just keep my head down. Anxieties, nah, I'm, I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty confident I can get through. Feeling guilty about sin, nah, I'm, I'm all right, aren't I? I'm sure I'm not perfect, but surely God will take things into account and she'll be right. No problems. All is good. No need to cry for despair. Uh, friend, if that's you, uh, may I be so bold as to suggest that you do not realise the reality of the hole that you're actually in. And in many ways, you're like King Hezekiah. For in chapter 39, King Hezekiah is someone who should have cried in despair. Chapter 39 is the end of this first section of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 39. And we saw in the last few weeks that the kingdom, there's the northern Israel and then the southern two tribes, Judah especially, and this kingdom is under attack. It is under attack from the Assyrians. And so Isaiah chapters 1 to 35 uh, speaks to this Assyrian invasion, invasion of, of Israel because of the sin of Israel. Around 740, Isaiah speaks into this space. And Isaiah prophesied, and as he prophesied, the prophecy came true. 722, Assyria actually took the ten northern tribes, conquered them. And it's at this point, Isaiah the prophet actually speaks to King Hezekiah, who comes as the king in the southern kingdom, in Judah, with the capital of Jerusalem. And in Isaiah 36 and 37, we hear of how Hezekiah, the king, has come so close to defeat. Uh, the Syrians had marched down. They were encamped around Jerusalem. But then Isaiah prays. A miracle happens. Uh, king of Assyria takes back off home. He's distracted and he gets killed at home. The 185,000 troops that are surrounding Jerusalem suddenly get slaughtered by the angel of the Lord. 
God defended, God saved Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 38 speaks of how Hezekiah the king got really sick. He was asked to get his affairs in order. But then he prays and again God spares him, gives him another 15 years of life. And so by the time you get to Isaiah 39, Hezekiah is on a bit of a roll. He's feeling pretty good, he's pretty, pretty high. He gets a visit from some uh, power, powerful uh, envoys from Babylon. Maybe some of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his men. He assumes, Hezekiah, that this is a friendly visit because the Babylonians gave him a present and a get well card. And so Hezekiah shows off all his goods, all his storehouses, all his treasures. It's like showing the robbers, you know, where to go to get all the stuff. And so Isaiah confronts Hezekiah in chapter 39 and verse 5. Is Judah going to fall? No, he's rescued. But here's what Isaiah says to Hezekiah. Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you and whom you will father shall be taken away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. In other words, the prophecy that judgment is going to come. All your treasure that you've amassed over the years, that's going to be taken off as loot. And even your sons, your grandsons, well, not only are they going to be in the Babylonian palace, but they're going to be their servants, not just servants, but as eunuchs, castrated, not able to have children. There is the end of the royal line for you. Babylon will be the next superpower after Assyria. And Judah is going to fall to Babylon. And Hezekiah says, sweet, it's all good. That's exactly what he says. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you say has spoken, it's good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Not too smart, this Hezekiah. <laughs> he should have known, he should have seen the deep anguish that would come, but he doesn't. Maybe he's just happy that it's not going to be in his lifetime. Maybe, you know, he was going to die and then suddenly he gets 15 years to live and, you know, you think you are, you know, indestructible. Maybe he just cares only about himself. We can sometimes feel like that, can't we? 15 years later, you know, 80, 90 years old, that's, that's, that's it, an eternity away. I mean, you're only 18, 21, you think you're going to live forever, don't you? I can tell by the way you drive. <laughs> <laughs> this generation that's going to come for Hezekiah is going to be deported to Babylon. But he does not recognize it. But Isaiah prophesies of a time when the people in Babylon, captives in Babylon, when they will recognize it. And it's captured up in chapter 40 in one little verse that's very important. As Isaiah in chapter 40 to 66 looks forward to the Babylon that's going to take over Judah. And that happens in 587. And here's the verse. In the smack 
almost in the middle, but towards the end of Isaiah 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Why do you say, my way is hidden from the Lord? My right is disregarded by my God. In other words, here's someone who does feel the anguish, the, 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 the desperateness. He does feel that, hey, how come God has rejected me, abandoned me? Where are you, God? Don't you care? Aren't you there? This is the despondency. This is the despair that the people of God living in Babylon recognised. It's captured in this famous uh, Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, we lay down and wept. When we remembered Zion, we remembered our home country, we lay down and wept for thee, O Zion. It is in this, this situation of, of despair that the second half of Isaiah speaks. Chapters 40 to 66 is all captured up in this first verse of chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. So point two, this is a positive cry, a cry of comfort, a message of tenderness that the prophet Isaiah will now speak still into the future. It hasn't come yet, but he says, this is the comfort you will get after you have gone to be slaves in Babylon. Why would there be comfort? Well, because, point 2a, your warfare has ended. That's a very positive message you see in verse 2a. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her that her warfare has ended. No more subjugation to, uh, to Babylon. No more civilian POW. No more slaves in Babylon. Comfort, yes. Not just because uh, there's no more fighting, but because you've won the battle. Uh, in the end of the World War II, um, the Japanese, the Germans, they were not at peace, although there was no war. It's the victors who have peace, as captured by this uh, famous photo. When you win, then there's joy, then there's comfort. But how would that come? Well, that Babylon captivity will come to an end, you see, second half of verse 2, when their sin has been paid for. After all, sin was the reason why they got into Babylon, why God judged them. But now your iniquity will be pardoned. You've received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins, double in terms of it's sufficiently paid. And notice it's fr from God himself. It's not that God didn't see, it's not that he just got lucky and he overlooked it, but God saw and, and God paid out of his own pocket. How? How has this come about? Is it because they've just done their time in Babylon, you know, served their jail term and that's why their sins are paid for? No, not really. We'll find out later on in the next few weeks in chapter um, Isaiah 53. Got something to do with we all like sheep have gone astray, ba ba do ba ba, but the Lord has laid on him. No, I won't tell you anymore. <laughs> I've given too much away already. These few verses in Isaiah chapter 41 to 5. It's an encapsulation, a synopsis of all that is about to happen. You're going to get assurance that you're going to escape because your sins will be paid for. 
But then verse 3 to 5, he goes on and gives another angle as to how this warfare would have ended. Well, verse 3, there's going to be a voice that's going to cry in the wilderness. And there's going to be a highway through the desert. Every valley will be chopped down, filled into, you know, the hills become the valley. So the whole thing is a smooth highway. Now, verse 4, you see that God really is a civil engineer, or at least he employed a civil engineer who uh, called out. Uh, maybe God is really a construction management person. And anyway, the desert then becomes a plain. Desert, wilderness. That is to remind us of the Exodus back in 1300 BC, where Egypt was one who had power over the people of God. And yet God rescued them out of Egypt. That was the first Exodus. Now is going to come another Exodus, a repeat, a, a second Exodus. In the first Exodus, Pharaoh's army was completely destroyed by the, the Red Sea, the, the, the signs and wonders, the plagues, and all the nations knew about it. Well, now, in this civil engineering project, the highway is going to come and God is going to come to bring them out of Babylon. God is the one who's going to show again his glory. And so verse 5, it will be shown to every flesh, everybody, because God has promised it. His mouth has spoken. When did this happen historically? Well, in 587, that's when Israel went into exile in Babylon. It's going to happen by a Persian king who's going to defeat the Babylonian king because Persia is going to be the next superpower. And it's going to happen through this Persian king Cyrus who in 538 BC came and took over. Uh, you see what uh, Cyrus did, uh, not only in the Bible, but you see it in the British Museum. The British Museum has everybody's stuff, don't they? And he's, I've actually seen it. I've been there. This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's only about the size of a sort of football. And inscripted on it is Cyrus's decree that as he came in and took over from Assyria, he then led all the captives from all the different countries to go back to their homeland. Probably a bit cheaper, isn't it, to look after them when you just send them back to their homeland. But he still ruled over them. You can look up later. Ezra chapter 1 talks about that decree. In the Bible, from God's angle, Cyrus was working for God and freeing the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. Isaiah prophesied this. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, in one sense, chapter 40, verse 1 to 5, is in, in encapsulated all that's there already in what's going to happen. But why then do we have to go to the end of Chapter 40, why verse 31 verses? Why not just five? Remember, he's writing to people who would be feeling despondent. Chapter 40, verse 27, those who are doubting that God could ever come and, and look after them. And it's to these people that there's this message of comfort. And the rest of chapter 40 really is addressed to them to help them see that this comfort really is coming. And so verse 6, God's word versus transient humanity. 
a voice speaks. Uh, he commands, it's commanded to cry. And so far there's been lots of voices, isn't there? Lots of speaking, lots of crying out. Um, uh, verse 2, we don't quite know who's asked to cry out to Jerusalem, comfort, comfort my people. Uh, verse 3, there's a voice to cry in the wilderness. Don't know quite, quite who, who that is yet. But verse 6, Isaiah takes on the responsibility. He said, okay, I'll cry, but, but what shall I cry? He should know. He should cry verse 1 to 5, isn't it? That, that's what he should cry. That's the message. But instead, there's another cry he makes. Verse 6. It's a cry about the fleshliness of humanity, the transientness of humanity. Verse 7. The people are like grass, are like flowers of the grass. People don't last long compared to the word of God. Uh, I was working in a hospital and um, went to a cardiac arrest, and uh, it was in Concord Hospital back then. You know, the average age was about 60, 70. And we were all working, trying to get this person back to life. And the senior doctor came in and said, ah, oh, I looked at the notes. How old is he? 80 years old. Ah, oh, he's dead. And he walked out. He stopped. Too old to resuscitate. Humans do not last long. You might think you belong to the big four and you've got great government contracts. But then your division can be sold for a dollar. And what happens to all those jobs? We feel invincible, don't we? And yet, recently, my wife and I buried three of our parents in six months. A good friend of mine from high school, driving home from working in Newcastle, died in a car crash. Humans do not actually last that long. We are frail. But God's word stands forever. All grass withers, verse 7. The flowers fade, but the breath of the Lord, well, when it blows on it, well, it really shows that the flesh, the people, are but nothing. Not only does God's word last forever, God's word smashes people. It's like blowing on a dandelion, isn't it? God just, and we're gone. For D, uh, God's word is actually his good news. Verse uh, 9 through to 11. Now, Zion is a herald of good news. Jerusalem is a herald of good news, not only receiving the good news, but now giving the good news to the, the cities around in Judah. Notice this good news is actually a good news of God coming in power. Ultimately, the gospel is about good news, but it's a good news from the king. It's royal news. And so verse 10, the Lord God comes in might. His arm rules for him. He's, a, he's like a king. He comes giving his recommends, his reward. He's the one who comes. Notice in verse 3 that the voice prepares the way and you expect God to then come from the highway and now it's the Lord who comes. But he comes as the one who has a mighty right arm. Again, reminding us of the Exodus. Back in the Exodus uh, chapter 15, it's God's right arm that saved the people out of Egypt. Again, he blew and the sea covered Pharaoh's armies. In the Old Testament, the kings of Israel were seen as shepherds 
verse 11. God will come and tend his flock. He'll carry them gently in his arm. He's not a tyrant kind of a king. He's a gentle king, but a king nonetheless. We're to think of this God like a shepherd carrying the sheep, but also like a mighty king coming. Perhaps I've given them too much away as to who this king is. But then the next part, of the, the last part almost of, um, of this chapter, verse 12 to 26, is a whole section about God's incomparable might as the creator. Come with me very quickly. God's word is a word of comfort to the new people who would come out of the exodus. His word lasts. He's the mighty shepherd king. And in verse 12, he's the incomparable creator. Notice in verse 18 and verse 25, explicitly this point is made. To whom will you liken God? Or what would you uh, compare him with? God is big. He's done what no one has done. Verse 12, he's been all kinds of comparison. Who's measured the waters in their hand? You stand by the beach and look at the ocean. It's vast. The biggest ocean around is actually the uh, Pacific. And there is the Pacific. And God's got it in his hand, just like a little ping pong ball. The dust of the earth, he's got it to measure. The mountains of Everest, he's, it's put on a little scale. It's like God is making a miniature little model of everything. And the university, verse 13 to 14, this great universe of knowledge, well, we're just here trying to find out what God himself has created. Who has measured, verse 13, the spirit of the Lord? Who's given him counsel? He's had no professors. He doesn't have to have a research supervisor over him. We are here to try to research what he has made. And so the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Russia, China, USA, Australia, Tasmania, a tenth of a drop in a bucket. Lebanon in verse 16, the great trees. Well, that's not trees enough for God to have a barbecue. All the animals, that's a nothing. What is God like? How can you compare him with an idol? Verse 18 to 20, you're going to make an idol of him. I saw a big idol in Hong Kong once, big massive thing bit of fruit underneath him for him to eat but he wasn't eating it so I shouted out come on eat why don't you eat and he didn't verse 21 to 24 again our minuteness our smallness compared to him verse 22 he looks down and he, he sees us like grasshoppers have you been in the hotel room and you look down from the 30th floor and you see just the little people walking around like ants I've done that and I've shut the curtain and well, verse 22, 23, 22, that shutting of the curtains like God, just shutting the sky. God is the one who created the stars, verse 26 to 20, 25 and 26. The James Webb tel uh, telescope, now three times the diameter of the Hubble, that can now see into space the stars that are many light years away and yet God is the one who keeps them in orbit. And so verse 12 to 26, it's all about who can compare with God. God is so big in his creation. Who can you compare with him? I was in Chicago in 1993. 
And that was the year when uh, Michael Jordan, the greatest basketballer of all, at least back then, uh, played against uh, the Suns. And uh, one game, Michael Jordan scored 55 points. And then afterwards, the guy trying to guard him, uh, Kevin someone, um, he was interviewed. And I saw the interview, and the interviewer said, oh, you know, it was, it was tough guarding Michael Jordan, wasn't it? How was it like guarding Michael? And Kevin just goes, Ah, oh, Michael, it was, it was, Michael, he just played like Michael. That's what God is like. You can't compare him with anyone. He's the one who's the great creator. But why? Why make this point that God is the great creator of everything? Well, it's because, verse 23, he brings princes to nothing. Rulers of the earth are as emptiness. Already we've seen the nations are dropping the bucket. In other words, God is the creator. He's so big over all flesh, including the princes, including even Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, including Cyrus, the king of Persia. He's the one who can move these kings and nations around. He can use our history, our creation, to do his purpose. And so later on in Isaiah 45, uh, look up there later, it says exactly that, that Cyrus is an instrument in God's hand. God's appointed Messiah, pagan Messiah, to subdue nations around him. And again, it talks about how God made the earth. God is going to use Cyrus and make Cyrus's way level like a highway in the desert. God is the one who's going to come and rule. And so, do not despair. Verse 27 to 31, given this sovereign rule of God, don't you recognize he's so big? Yes, you might, you might be in despair, but don't worry. Haven't you not heard of God's promise? God who's in control of everything. Do not despair. And so verse 28 onwards, it's all about how God, Yahweh, is going to come and rescue. The God of the Exodus is going to come and do it again. And so verse 28, don't get tired. He doesn't get tired. You may get tired and despondent, but he will give you strength. And so verse 30, the great uh, passage there about even the young people will grow tired. Great encouragement uh, verse for me as an oldie. But just wait for the Lord. He will give you strength. God is the one who can do it. This cry is a cry of comfort. Do you know one little difference, though, between the first exodus and the second exodus? In the first exodus, they weren't there because of their sin. There's no indication, as far as I can find, that you know, people of God were in Egypt because they sinned. They were rescued out of slavery, yes. But now there's a development. Now in Babylon, they are there because of their sin. And God is going to rescue them out. Well, how's it going to happen? Well, point three... A cry in the wilderness. In Mark chapter 1, a voice 
cries in the wilderness. He's the beginning of the gospel. He's the Christ who's going to come and actually rescue the people. This cry in the wilderness, it's quoting Isaiah. But if you actually, uh, someone who knows about the Bible, he doesn't actually quote Isaiah, he quotes Malachi. But that's okay, because Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, is quoting Isaiah. And so ultimately, he's right, Marx is not wrong. But Malachi, he was already in the promised land. God already rescued the people back into the promised land. Cyrus had already come, but they were not free. They were still under spiritual wilderness, spiritual, sinful captivity. And so when Jesus comes, the people are still not free. They're still under the Romans, but more than that, they're under spiritual slavery. For as you read through even the book of Mark, you see that it's the slavery to sin that is the real problem. Wilderness. Jesus goes to the wilderness. He's tempted in the wilderness. He feeds the 5,000 in the wilderness. Lord, the sea miracles crossing the, the seas, just like the Red Sea miracle. It's all about Egypt. And yet it's all about the people's sin. Friends, that is our real despair in terms of our wilderness. As awful as the war is in, in Ukraine, it's not a foreign power that is the main problem. Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. As awful as sicknesses are, that is not the main problem. Jesus tells the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. It's our sin, it's our trying to be autonomous against God, it's our trying to be me and to determine myself and determine what I do is the best way to go. That is, well, that's what we call freedom, but really it is not free. But it gets worse than that. Jesus talks to the Jews and he says, your father's really Satan. Not just sin, but we follow the lie of sin, the liar himself. You know, Satan says, look, follow my way, I'll give you life. This is a real way to the real way to live, but really it's a lie because it leads to death. It leads to eternal death. It's in this situation that Jesus comes, the left field Messiah, the one who you wouldn't expect, just like you wouldn't expect Cyrus. He comes as the powerful creator, the powerful saviour, the one who comes to die on the cross, to pay double for our sins. Friends, if you're someone who's like Hezekiah and you think everything's fine, hey, it's all sweet, then think again. If you're someone who has followed Christ, then you would know the great comfort that there is in the gospel. But notice, we as Christians are still not yet finally home. We have our wilderness of hope. In 1 Peter, it talks about these Christians as being in exile. They're the ones who 
are heading home, heading to that inheritance that is reserved for them in heaven, but we are not there yet. In the meantime, there is suffering. In chapter 1 and verse 17, throughout the time of your exile, we live this life with persecutions, with temptations, with distractions. We are passing through and we haven't got to our homeland yet. So do not be too attached to this world. I had an overseas student friend who um, wanted to uh, go back home. And I said, oh, I guess you have to sell all your furniture. And I said, oh, no, not really. My desk was just a door I picked up off the street and I put it on some nook crates. So I'm just going to put it all back on the street. Our home is not here. We are those who in chapter 2 and verse 11 are sojourners and exiles. There is a war, but it's a war sometimes from within our passions wanting to sin. We need the comfort of the gospel to say, no, no, that, we're done with that life. It's a war perhaps from the outside in terms of persecution. One of my family members uh, is a teacher and this was teaching John 3.16 in a Christian school. And yet because she talked about Jesus actually giving life so that we do not perish, there was complaints against her from a student, from a parent, from, well, even my daughter had to go to the principal's office. I could still feel her, her tears and struggle as, as she sought to teach the truth. What do you do when you get persecution like that? Well, in Peter says, you've got to actually keep trusting your shepherd. Keep trusting your faithful creator in doing what is good. And so ultimately, it's about waiting for the Lord. The very end of Isaiah, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is the tone of, of comfort. Sometimes, friends, you might be someone who uh, may be going through difficulty, anxieties that you go through. I know sometimes, you know, you need to see the doctor and get medication for a little while. But even modern research says it's about how you think. It's your cognitive behaviour. And we as Christians have have the best way to think, for we know the truth, the reality that we've been forgiven. What comfort. We know the truth that we're heading towards heaven. What a certainty of hope. We of all people can have hope, can have comfort. I don't know what you're going to go through. I've got some friends who just left uni for five, ten years, and they've had car accident, uh, cancer, a birth of a disabled child, uh, lost their job because they tried to be an accountant and not do dodgy books. I have parents say to them, I'm not talking to you because you're thinking about full-time ministry. I don't know what you're going to go through in the future. The Apostle Paul went through all kinds of anxieties and sufferings and dangers. But look how he speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll end with these words. Blessed is the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our infliction, 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Notice there, it talks about being utterly burdened beyond his strength, despaired of life itself under the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely, to wait, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. There is Isaiah 40, forefront in Paul's thinking. Comfort, comfort my people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the comfort that comes in Jesus that was prophesied in Isaiah. We thank you that we've been rescued from, from sin, from slavery, from Satan. And thank you for the hope of heaven. And we pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.